Good morning, Stone County in north central Arkansas. This is your 831 Bleeding Edge update from What's Up Doc. So the hard and fast COVID update shows that in our region we've got a little bit of warning for concern as school has opened with Independence County having had three new deaths over the last 14 days and Stone County having its first death in almost six weeks. The region has shown a bit of a trend toward the yellow and red, with now only Izzard, Baxter, and Fulton County really in the green as far as deaths and new cases. However, in our region in general, we are up to about 25% of cases that are active over the last 14 days out of our entire now nearly six-month pandemic. County by county, the active cases in Independence are 114 out of 766. Sharp County, 16 out of 146. Fulton County, 15 out of 67. Baxter County, 31 of 132. Izzard County, 23 of 98. And in Stone County, which we'll deal with more specifically in a minute, we've got about 130 active cases out of what appears to be 280 total cases over the pandemic. The recovery rates are still continuing. We now have over a 1,000 recovered cases in our six-county region, which I report on, and that's a big landmark. Out of a total of 1,517 cases, the state lists us as having 1,001 cases recovered. Now, in Stone County, we see that based on the reports that I receive daily from our health unit, from the hospitals in the area, from testing agencies, as well as from the local clinics, that we have now done just over 400 tests in our county over the last 16 days since the outbreak on 814. We have had of those 133 documented positives, although just a few of those might be duplicated. We have certainly had over that 16 days at least 120 positives. Now, we have quarantined presumptive cases still somewhere around 70 to 90 cases. And we have some pending tests in the county of 62 total that I can count. So if we take of the 133 positives that we've had and we add to it that at least half of those who are presumptive but untested in the county were positive, and then at least 10% of our pending test positive, we are likely looking at somewhere around 182 cases of COVID in our county over the last 16 days. Now this is up from on 814 having had 79 active cases, and that leaves us with likely somewhere in our area of a total of between 250 and 280 cases over the pandemic. You won't see this with the state's numbers because they're not quite there yet uh, catching up, but they listed us as having 191 cases. So in the region, we have a 30% bed availability in hospitals. Our ICU bed availability is 30%, and this is down about uh, 20% compared to what it was just a week or so ago. And our ventilator capacity has gone from 90 to 95 percent, just down a little to 85 percent. So the summary is that we're at a point where we just don't know with these slightly increased cases in the region, some of the new deaths from those cases that were more severe, 
And with school having just started last Wednesday for most of our region, we're uh, sitting with bated breath, not knowing exactly what's going to happen over the next few days. But consider this. If you look at our county, in Stone County, we started school on Wednesday. Now, we, in fact, are still in the middle of an outbreak. We don't know what that's going to mean. But many of us suspect that within two to three weeks of school starting, we'll likely have to shut it down because of new cases. We all hope not. We all hope for the best and for these kids to be able to stay in school and stay participating in all the extracurricular activities. However, those children were exposed on Wednesday to a lot of children they hadn't been around in many weeks and months. So, if a child was exposed to COVID Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday of last week, those children will be asymptomatic likely, but starting to secrete virus on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday of the following week. We'll begin to see symptoms in those who were exposed and who get COVID-19 somewhere around Monday to Wednesday and then on through the week for those whose exposures may have taken place over the weekend. Now, Labor Day weekend is coming up next weekend, and by the time Labor Day weekend arrives, we'll begin to see the secondary cases that were exposed to the sick children on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Those exposed cases will then begin to shed virus over the Labor Day weekend and begin to show ill signs likely on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of the following week. So we should have a good feel for what's going on in our county with the school children on the Tuesday and Wednesday following Labor Day. And we just don't know. I've really been impressed and appreciative of how the local health system has pulled together over the last two weeks. The response of the churches in the area has been tremendous, and everyone's been trying to be careful. I've seen more masks, and that's fantastic. So just a brief update on the correspondence and the most up-to-date journals. We see that the prevalence of SARS-CoV-2 antibodies among healthcare workers in a disease epicenter, this study was published in the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association on August the 11th, and I read as follows. Infection rates were lower among healthcare workers than among the public. Now think about that. The New York City metropolitan area emerged as an epicenter of the COVID pandemic, as we all know, back in March. A recent population study showed a prevalence of the antibodies for SARS-CoV-2, 21% in New York City and 17% in Long Island. However, the prevalence among healthcare workers in this area was unknown. In the study, the researchers sought to find out the prevalence of antibodies among healthcare workers in a widespread screening across a 364-bed hospital in Roslyn, New York, which is a Long Island community near New York City where personal protective equipment use was based on CDC guidelines stringently. During March and April, symptomatic employees underwent nasopharyngeal testing for the virus, and all employees were offered antibody testing. Of 3,046 employees who averaged in age about 43, 56% underwent antibody testing, and 10% of those tested employees were positive for antibodies. No significant differences were noted between sex, ethnicity, job title, or job area. So, this seroprevalence, we call that, was significantly lower than that of the Long Island general public, which had been at 17%. So, we see that it was nearly half as low 
in that group and lower than half than in the population at large. So the comment by the author reviewers, in this study, the rate of SARS-CoV-2 infection was substantially lower among healthcare workers than among the general public in Long Island. The authors conclude that because hospital healthcare workers are exposed to a much higher density of the virus, the results provide very strong evidence for the effectiveness of personal protective equipment use according to CDC guidelines. Now, a quick review of the rest of the literature. In Journal Watch, which synthesizes all of the major, major journals, we see that Dr. Andre Sofair, who you've heard about before, and Dr. Susan Sadalgi, M.D., looked at the latest developments. So two studies on saliva testing. The New England Journal of Medicine published this last week that among 70 patients with confirmed COVID, more copies of viral RNA were detected in saliva than in clinician-collected nasopharyngeal specimens. What's interesting about this is the saliva samples were taken by the patients themselves. The saliva samples were positive in 13 of those patients, and all 13 were later on confirmed to have SARS-CoV-2, which was even more effective than the nasopharyngeal swabs, which, as many of you know, are a lot more painful, irritating, and a lot more costly and time-consuming. So another study in the Annals of Internal Medicine this week, researchers report findings from paired saliva and nasopharyngeal or oropharyngeal swab tests from over 1,900 high-risk, asymptomatic, or mildly symptomatic people. Of these, 22 of the participants tested positive with swabs alone and 14 with saliva alone, but an additional 34 tested positive on both. The researchers write, despite a lower estimated rate of detection relative to swab testing, saliva testing may be of particular benefit for remote, vulnerable, or challenging populations, and we see that those two studies agree with each other. In South Korea, a study that was published in the journal, the American Medical Association Pediatrics Journal, showed that uh, 91 children were followed uh, and monitored through their course of confirmed COVID-19 illness. 22 never developed any symptoms. Of those who had symptoms, 58% had upper respiratory tract infections and 31% had lower respiratory tract infections. That 31% and those lower respiratory tract infections are somewhat like a pneumonia. Overall, the median duration of symptoms was about 13 days. SARS-CoV-2 RNA molecules were detected for an average of 18 days. And among asymptomatic children alone, viral RNA was detected for 14 days. So what we see is that even after the children are well, they continue to secrete a version of the virus. But we don't believe that they're infected uh, or infective, I should say, after nine days once they begin to have symptoms, and that's what our policies are based on. A new development that we reported to you on What's Up, Doc, as of last Monday, the FDA has based a new policy on a study we reported to you about uh, the use of remdesivir. So on Friday of this last week, the FDA expanded the emergency use authorization for remdesivir. It's now authorized for use in all adults and children that require hospitalization with suspected or confirmed COVID-19, regardless of the disease severity. That's a big move because it's a very expensive drug between $2,000 and $5,000 per treatment. But even at $5,000, 
an actuarial study showed that it would save money in the long term for insurers. The expansion was based on findings from two randomized trials that suggested a benefit from treatment in patients with even mild to moderate disease, and that's the study that we reported to you last Monday. So we have a big new development in something that there have been many questions asked about, and that is, can you get reinfected with COVID? Well, for all of you that have uh, followed Facebook and Twitter and the news with all of the suggestions that you can get COVID twice and that infection doesn't protect you. We have now had our, and hear this, the first reported case in the United States of someone who likely had a case of COVID-19 reinfection. So a Nevada man tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 virus in April. He had a mild illness and subsequently did test negative twice. Then in late May, he became ill again. He developed a more severe disease and tested positive again. And the analysis of the two uh, genomes or the two tests of his DNA or RNA molecules in those viral samples were significantly different than one another, indicating that the patient had two different versions of the SARS-CoV-2 virus showing some mutations. So, Now, six months after this started, with all of these suggestions and questions and confusion, we've actually confirmed a single case now out of over six million cases of COVID confirmed of someone who's been reinfected. So, it is possible. That's your Bleeding Edge update for Monday morning, folks. Hold on to your seats. We don't know what's coming with school. Take care of those kids. Guard yourselves. Try to continue to use all the proper precautions. Wash your hands. Wear your masks. Sneeze and cough into your elbow. Uh, sterilize everything and make sure those kids uh, show get a good example shown by us adults. And I'll try to see you again by Friday unless we see some new developments on Wednesday. And we'll have a brand new update on our YouTube channel, What's Up Doc, uh, for how it is that you can grow through a pandemic and solutions that we can live with. So I look forward to hearing your responses to that. Thanks for your attention. It's good to talk to you. (laughs) 